0: When danger reared its ugly head, Brave Sir Robin turned and fled, Brave, brave Sir Robin. Yes, brave Sir Robin turned about, Gallantly he chickened out, Brave, brave Sir Robin, Swiftly taking to his feet, Brave Sir Robin beats retreat, Brave, brave Sir Robin. Uh, You might know that song, um, from I think Monty Python's... um, Holy Grail, yes, yeah, brave Sir Robin. When danger reared its ugly head, brave Sir Robin turned and fled. Uh, Running away, fleeing, uh, gets a surprisingly bad press in popular culture. It isn't what we expect a brave person, a courageous person to do. In fact, we see fleeing as evidence of cowardice, somebody listening to and obeying their fears. However, Part of my work this morning will be to train you up as a group of crack fleers, ready to quit at a moment's notice. Run away, retire, flee from the field of battle, resign, run, and hide. Uh, We are doing a series of sermons on the last third of King David's life from the book of 2 Samuel. David's son Absalom is attempting a takeover, a coup d'etat. And the numbers are on Absalom's side. Convincingly so. Verse 13, the hearts uh, or minds of the people of Israel or men of Israel are with Absalom. That probably means Absalom is now in control of the military. So David's life is in danger from his son. And so are the lives of all who follow David. Now, in order to understand what's happening, we need to understand the complexity of this situation for poor old David. Because in many ways, David has brought this down upon himself. This doesn't therefore take him at all by surprise. Uh, Last year, when we were looking at the middle third of King David's life, we read together the story of David and Bathsheba, how he committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged to have her husband killed on the battlefield so as to look like a casualty of war. The prophet Nathan came to David and said to him, um, among other things, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your hands, into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret." But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Um, David uh, thereafter um, asked for forgiveness and he was forgiven. Um, He will not die. God will continue to be his God and he will continue to be God's child. He is forgiven. But that doesn't mean that God will leave his sin unpunished. So then, in at least three ways, this is a complex situation for David. Firstly, David has brought this situation upon himself. It is from the Lord. It is the Lord's discipline. Secondly, although God has passed a sentence and judged that violence would come on the house of David, just as David brought violence down on the house of Uriah, God said nothing about David losing the kingship. Before God, the crown actually does continue to belong on David's head, not Absalom's. Thirdly, it is David's own son. This is not some foreign king, it's not even one of his own military generals. It is his own son who has orchestrated this coup. It is his son. David will have to separate himself from his own personal feelings like never before. And so, once again, David goes into exile. Once again, David flees into the wilderness, a refugee, homeless, on the run for his life. Last year, we saw how David failed the test of success. It went to his head. He became prayerless, and briefly, he played the autocratic despot, taking what he wanted, without reference to God or neighbor. But humbled, he fell to his knees and prayed. How now will David respond to the test of failure? Well, firstly, he fled. Many, indeed, uh, may have expected David to stand and fight. Jerusalem, after all, is a fortress city that is easy to defend and difficult to take. And in fact, so far in history, David is the only person who has successfully taken the fortress city of uh, Jerusalem. He knows how to defend his keep. He knows how to stand and fight. But instead, David runs away. And I think this is beautiful, This may surprise you, but actually running away is a standard tactic in the Bible. In fact, the book of Acts, in that book we see that whenever Christians were persecuted, and there were many instances of Christians being persecuted in the book of Acts, the standard response was to flee. Paul flees a city at least ten times in the book of Acts, usually with his life in danger and sometimes in a clandestine way from uh, the new testament my my own rule of thumb my own rule of thumb is that i believe just personally i believe that whenever we experience persecution our assumption should be that jesus wants us to leave assuming that leaving is possible therefore if we choose to stay put in the face of persecution as Paul did in Jerusalem, it is only because we are under the conviction that in this particular instance and in response to personal revelation, Jesus is specifically telling us to stay in order that we might be crucified, in order that we might suffer redemptively for others, for the gospel. Thus, I believe that the standard Christian response to any form of persecution is to run away to capitulate, to retire from the field of conflict, assuming that that is possible. We only stay if personal revelation gives us the conviction that the Lord wants us to stay. Without this revelation, we go. I think that's that's what Scripture says quite plainly. I should point out that not everybody agrees with me on that. A friend of mine who is also an ordained Anglican minister, he gives people the opposite advice. He says, if Jesus has called you somewhere, you don't leave, unless Jesus calls you to leave. You need the conviction of personal revelation in order to have the freedom to go. And if you get crucified, you get crucified. Crucifixion isn't optional, it'll happen either way, it's just about how it will happen. So then, between my view and my friend's opposing view, you can can take your pick. But I will now continue to argue my own case and not my friend's. I believe that fleeing in the face of persecution is the loving thing to do. And Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Jesus calls us to love people and not the things, the material things or the resources or the rights, which we're usually fighting over. Fleeing can also be necessary in order to avoid collateral damage. In our text today, David flees because he knows that Absalom will kill not only him, but rather all who are with him, as well as, in fact, the whole city, if he stays and fights. David sees that it can't be helped. He will drag innocent people into this conflict, which really is just a conflict between him and his son. He will drag innocent people into this conflict if he stands and fights. So he flees. Some of us may occasionally find ourselves persecuted in this country for our Christian faith or for holding Christian views that others consider unacceptable. But all of us, all of us, We'll find ourselves persecuted from time to time by way of disputes over rights or resources, disputes with neighbors, disputes with workmates, disputes with those in authority above us. And um, I have given pastoral support to a small number of people who have found themselves on the receiving end of something called constructive dismissal. Constructive dismissal is one form of unfair dismissal. Constructive dismissal is illegal in Australia, the US, and the United Kingdom. Constructive dismissal is when somebody is forced into resigning in response to an increasingly hostile work environment. Constructive dismissal is when it isn't, we- it isn't about whether or not you can do your job satisfactorily. It's rather about other things. Maybe the market is in decline and your employer is looking for a way of getting rid of you without having to pay out a redundancy package. Maybe the pool of work is shrinking and some of your workmates decide to make your life hell because actually you're better at the job than they are. Constructive dismissal in a mining town like Perth is depressingly common and it will involve bullying lots of carefully thought out ways of making your work life unbearable, but each one justified in some way or another so as to avoid the the, the law courts. Those on the receiving end of such treatment often find themselves in enormous distress. Their, Their confidence just shattered, heartbroken by betrayal and the horrible treatment that they're suddenly getting from people only a short time earlier they may have regarded as as loyal friends. It's a very nasty business. And my counsel to those whom I've seen go through this is, leave, flee, resign. Happily, the world's advice to people in such circumstances is, don't resign. It's easier to fight if you don't give any ground. So my advice, happily, is exactly the opposite of what the world advises. You can uh, make up your own minds. But my advice is get out of there. Um, Constructive dismissal often happens to people in the ascendancy or even at the very height of their careers. Um, I haven't been through it myself. Nothing quite like that, although obviously I've had my own trials, but I feel it very keenly whenever it happens to somebody I know. Um, for men, um, uh, I'm not saying this isn't devastating for women. I'm just saying that for me as a man, I know how devastating it can be for another man, uh, how tremendously difficult when you find yourself suddenly mid-career in the wilderness of unemployment just at a time when you should be advancing in significance and authority. Um, for us men, and this isn't right, you know, we, our identity should always be in Christ. But for, for, for us men, and it might be true for women. Just I'm just saying. For me as a man, I know that, that you know we kind of are our jobs. Without our jobs, we're kind of nobody, nothing. It's it's devastating. But this is exactly what's happening to David. He is losing his job. But if you're not wanted somewhere, just go. And I would say that to date, I do feel vindicated by the outcomes that I've witnessed to that advice. In every case so far, where the person in question has taken that action, that is withdrawn, God has blessed them and they were far better off at the end than they were at the start. That's a particular instance constructive dismissal. More generally, all of us will encounter situations sometime in life where, with respect to some right or some resource, the, the thing to do, actually, it will, really, it will really really be challenging and difficult. But actually, we won't want to do it, but actually the right thing will be to withdraw. And on that day, as we leave the field of conflict, we might actually have to say something like, well, no, actually, this is my sandpit I I bought it and I built it and I, I filled it with sand and I was definitely here first. But if it's so precious to you, if you want it that bad here, have it. I'll walk away. The, the Lord will find for me another sand pit. As as hard as it is for me personally, the the injustice of it, as as That it's not right, yet nevertheless, the plain factor of the matter is that Jesus has called me to love people and not sandpits. Returning to David, I don't think we should underestimate his spiritual maturity here. He is implicitly being compared to Saul, Who, when his kingship was in jeopardy, he dug in his heels and he fought tooth and nail, um, getting more and more insane in the process. The the narrator is also comparing David to Absalom, who grasped for leadership. But mature leaders, mature leaders are prepared to go, they are ready to leave. Um, I I understand that uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, won his first term of presidency in the United States. Jimmy Carter, his um, administration over, he spent the last few weeks of his administration tidying up the White House, getting everything in place, ready for the handover. Uh, when, the, when Ronald Reagan's administration came in, there it all was, all laid out, ready to go. They explained that this is here, this is here, this is here. Here's how they, here are the reins, here are the pedals, everything you need. I understand that uh, President Jimmy Carter's administration is the only American administration in in history that has done that. Otherwise, the tactic is is universal. You leave the White House in utter disarray so as to obstruct the administration that has defeated you in the ballots. Uh, That's what everybody else does. But Jimmy Carter, a a Christian, he did the opposite thing. Uh, mature leaders are ready to leave to let go neurotic leadership defends its position of power at all costs even up to the point of developing its own nuclear arms program in order to protect its leadership and, and we have for better or for worse Kim Jong Il and North Korea as just this shining example of neurotic leadership in all of its inglory. glory um, Verses 25 to 29, David sends the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And and that's, that's that's just extraordinary. In doing that, he is letting go. He's letting go of any claim of being able to say, God is on my side. He doesn't know whose side God's on. What he does know is that God is on God's side. So so he sends sends the Ark of the Covenant back. In doing so, he is in effect submitting to God his letter of resignation. He doesn't know if God will accept it or not, but he has given to God his letter of resignation as king. Saul, of course, we remember three times he was told, the Lord has rejected you as king. But he refused to acknowledge it, and he held on to his kingship more, held on to his power more and more and more fiercely, going insane in the process, causing enormous bloodshed, throwing Israel eventually into civil war. David, on the other hand, he actually has good reasons for believing that God has not rejected him as king, that he is still the true anointed Messiah, the king of Israel but he doesn't depend on that. He doesn't lean on his own understanding. Rather, he depends upon God. He gives back the ark, and in doing so, lays down his claim to kingship, ready for the possibility that the Lord is not pleased with him, that the Lord has rejected him too as king. Not not rejected him as his child, just rejected him with respect to the job. Having sent the ark back, it will now take a mighty move of God ever to reunite it with him back in Jerusalem. Um, This is the exercise of extraordinary maturity, extraordinary faith in God. So David flees. Uh, He sends back the ark. What else can we note about David's behavior? Well, In the face of suffering, David returns to humility. Verses 19 to 22, the narrator records for us David's interaction with Ittai the Gittite, how David doesn't want to draw him into a conflict that really has nothing to do with him, and allowing him, without difficulty or shame, to go back to Jerusalem and serve King Absalom. Did did you notice that in verse 19, as Andrea was reading to it? David refers to his son as King Absalom. That's extraordinary. Um, David understands, he gets it, that in this crisis, there'll be many, many people, vast numbers of people, who for one reason or another, they simply must serve Absalom as king irrespective of where their conscience lies. And he's not going to be resentful. Look, Atai, this has nothing to do with you. It's okay. Go go and serve him as king. David is not going to punish them um, or label them as traitors. And this is extraordinary. In this deeply personal crisis, David is not taking things personally. He's able to not take it personally. He humbles himself, and David's humility and understanding so affect Ittai that it makes Ittai even more of a devout follower of David than he was before. No, no, I will follow you now anywhere, to the very ends of the earth. Such such is his attraction to the humility of David. David humbles himself. What else does he do? Well, verse 24, the second half of the verse, they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. David is on the run with families, with children, but he waits for everyone to catch up. He could just flee at his own pace. But no, he stops. He waits for everyone to catch up, and in that time, he worships. God. Sorry, David. David can worship God, even when God is the very source and origin of all of his troubles. More on this in future sermons, but the principle is key and it's found everywhere in Scripture. What do you do when you realize that God is your enemy? What do you do when you realize that God is your enemy? Well, you run to him because he is always gracious and kind and he is always merciful. David worships, and David, lastly, prays. Prayer is explicitly mentioned in verse 31, which, uh, which is part of the text I want to look at next week, the Lord willing. But David is praying along the way, and one of his prayers was recorded for us, Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear tens of thousands who assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Uh, David David is afraid, he's scared. But in coming into the presence of God in prayer, he remembers the lesson that the wilderness has taught him time and time and time again in the past, that God is his shield, God will protect him, God will provide, God will cover him, God will watch over him as he sleeps, God will answer his prayers and preserve his life. The uh, enemy language of the Psalter, the enemy language which is such a big feature of the Psalms, it can be confusing for us perhaps because we think that loving our enemies means being nice to them. How can strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked, be reconciled with, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can those two things be reconciled? Well, actually, there's no essential contradiction. Rather, in a way, the two things do go hand in hand. In praying this prayer, David has prayed his anger and hurt into God's hand. He's had a good vent, and we all need to vent. Emotions don't go away until they are acknowledged and expressed in one way or another. He's, he's praying his anger into God's hand. In praying this prayer, David forgave. Forfeiting his legal right to repayment of debt in kind, forfeiting that right into God's hand. From now on, if there is any breaking of teeth to be done, it will be done by God and not by David. In praying this prayer, David trusts. He trusts that God will work things out so that he won't have to grasp. And having done all this, David is ready to ask God to forgive and save Absalom. Not something that's articulated in Psalm 3, but something that we will come to know as we voyage through this story. Something we'll come to know is actually the deepest prayer of David's heart. Well, David fled. David humbled himself. David worshipped. David prayed. David is doing well. But David is not Jesus. He is not perfect. Verse 16, The king set out, with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. Uh, There is no way that that decision can be defended or the offense of it can be lessened. Uh, David, a man of his time, a patriarch in a patriarchal age, condemns these ten women. Oh, and by the way, a man of God shouldn't even have concubines in the first place. It was not like that at the beginning. But By leaving them behind, David condemns these poor women to an unspeakable fate, uh, and something truly awful will happen to them. But thousands, probably tens of thousands, would have died if David had stood his ground, dug in his heels, and fought. He would have led Israel into another bloody civil war. Well... As we let this passage sink in, I think we need to let it reshape what we think courage looks like. It takes courage to let go. It takes courage to run away, to quit, to give in, to acquiesce, to forfeit, to flee it takes courage to in releasing whatever is in our hands into God's hands, allowing him to be the judge of everything it, and allowing him to give back to us in the fullness of time whatever it is that he thinks right should be in our hands. It takes courage to do that. And loving our enemies doesn't necessarily mean being nice to them, but actually it usually means suffering for them. That's what loving enemies means. It means being prepared to suffer unjustly for someone else who is persecuting you. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, his enemies. He suffered unjustly in order that we might be saved. And so, may the good Lord, may our Lord make us into a fine bunch of quitters, for the sake of his glory. And the Lord be with your spirit. Amen.